And please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. We take a second look, a, a focused look on a, on a smaller portion of this text this evening. In Jonah 2, we see Jonah as the forsaken evangelist, and the, the whole of the chapter is full of deep and humble and honest cries to God from the belly of the fish. And in verses 8 and 9, where we're going to focus, we have uh, from Jonah a sharp contrast between two options. But before we read the Word of God, just a question to you, for you to consider as you begin to think about God's Word impacting your life. What is most important to you? What is most important to you? Or to think of it in another way, what is your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most? What do you rely on or comfort yourself with when things go badly or are difficult? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What are you the proudest of? What do you really want and expect out of life? What really makes you happy? Is it possible that you and I are cherishing worthless idols? Let's consider the Word of God. This is the infallible, uh, unblemished Word of God. And as we read in verses 8 and 9, there's a call to you and to me to spurn worthless idols and to cherish Jesus' salvation. And so hear the Word of God. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the very word of God, and let's seek him in prayer, asking for his help. Our Father in heaven, we do pray now that as we come to your word, we might come with the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray that the gospel would come this evening, not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Have your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you cherishing worthless idols? And just to help you think about that in the context of Jonah, one of the, the commentaries says this about these verses. He says, who does Jonah mean when he speaks here of those who cling to worthless idols? Is he thinking of the sailors? Possibly. Certainly the force of his personal statement in verse 9 suggests a contrast between himself and idolaters. If this is right, his assessment of the ship's crew is hopelessly adrift. By the time Jonah had been hurled into the sea, they had long abandoned their former idols. Even as he was praying from the horrors of his plight, they were offering their sacrifices to the Lord and making vows to him. Jonah was promising to do the same, but the sailors were actually ahead of him. So, Jonah... Are you cherishing worthless idols? Springs Reformed Church, are you cherishing worthless idols? Now you'll note in our verse that it says those who pay regard, and I've used the word cherishing. Cherishing, is that, is that the right word? It's translated variously in English Bibles to follow after, to give regard to, to follow, to worship, to cherish. 
And it's a word Tom mentioned, Psalm 119, it speaks over and over about the word of God. But one of the things in Psalm 119 is it speaks of the psalmist and his response and his reaction to God and to God, his word, and the sense of following God's law. It's the same word that's used here, following or paying regard to worthless idols. And we know that to follow the law of God is not to do it casually, not to just sort of, you know, maybe I'll consider the law of God. No, to follow the law of God is to, is to cherish it, is to pursue it. And so cherishing certainly fits. And for the Christian, at any moment of sin, in that moment, we are indeed cherishing worthless idols. There's something that's more important to us than obedience to our Father in heaven and our Savior who has redeemed us. Again, one writer about this topic says this, the Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. It is found on center stage. Calvin, as you likely have heard and read, says in his institutes, we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. I don't know if any of you, I don't know that any of you do work in a factory um, in Indianapolis where we grew up, just north of Indianapolis in Anderson. There were a lot of automotive factories and they churned out this part or that part. And Calvin is saying our heart is at least tempted to churn out this or that idol. Luther, as he was wrestling with what is justification by faith versus the effort that he was putting into living a, a godly enough life for God to accept him on his own merits, says this in his treatise on good works. Now you see for yourself that all those who do not at all times trust God and do not in all their works or sufferings, life and death, trust in his favor, grace and goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep this commandment, that's the first commandment he's commenting on, and practice real idolatry. Even, he says, if they were to do all the, the works of all the other commandments, in addition, all, had all the prayers, fastings, obedience, patience, love, and innocence of all the saints combined. So he says, if you're doing all those things, but you're not trusting the Lord, then you are committing idolatry. Are you cherishing worthless idols? But why are idols worthless? Is, is that maybe too strong a, a, a statement? Is it, in fact, is, is there more? Is there, is, there, is there something of value in an idol? Well, no. <laughs> They're empty things. In Psalm 96, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And I'm not giving you these Hebrew words to somehow show you I'm better than you, just there, there's something in the sounds. Tom mentioned that in Psalm 119, the fact that every letter in each stanza of Psalm 119 starts with the same letter. And for Hebrew hearers, for boys and girls that were learning their, their scriptures, they would hear that sound. Well, in Psalm 96, verse 5, for the gods, the Elohim, and you're familiar with that word and sort of that pronunciation, or at least it sounds something like that, for the, for the Elohim, of the peoples are Elilim, worthless idols. There's a rhyme there, and perhaps intentionally on God's part in the original language, that the what we, we might think of the Elohim, God himself, is not that. It's Elilim. It's empty, worthless things. 
Idols are worthless because they're empty, because they're nothing, because they're made by man. And the prophet Isaiah, in what I find to be somewhat of a humorous passage, says this, Isaiah 44, verses 15 to 17. He says, a person can use it. He's speaking about wood. He says, a person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself, kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and he says, ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. And he makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down and worships. He prays to it and says, save me for you are my God. Isaiah is poking fun at the folly of taking a piece of wood, cutting it in half, burning half of it to warm yourself or to roast some meat and then bowing down and worship the other. And one of the guy gets mixed up and he bows down to the, to the piece of wood that's burning up in the fire and then his God is gone. But even if it's not that piece, it's just as worthless. Idols are worthless because they're made by man. So we sang in Psalm 135 and it echoes the words from Psalm 115. They're, they're worthless because they have no power. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but can't speak. Eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, noses but can't smell. They have hands but can't feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Idols are liars. They offer empty promises. As one person said, an idol is paradoxically a spiritually dangerous power that saps you of all power when you give yourself to it. Don't cherish worthless idols. But what idols might you cherish? It's not likely that any of you cut a tree down, burn some of it to, to warm yourself by the fire or to, or to make uh, a roast to, to roast your meat on it and then carve the other portion into an idol or a god. It's not likely that you worship images, but please understand that's not that far removed from our day and age. A friend who came to Christ in our first pastorate uh, had very friendly neighbors, and we spent a lot of time with them speaking about the gospel. And I should have asked my wife because she'll remember their names, but I remember them. I just don't remember their names, just like I don't remember some of your names yet. But one of the times that I was in their home talking to them about the gospel, the wife, and this was an older couple, she, uh, we, we were sit, sitting on kind of their back porch area, part of the house, not, not an exterior porch. And she had a, a so-called picture of Jesus there on the wall. And she said, I like to sit back here because I feel close to God. Idolatry is not that far removed, even in our present day and age. But that's probably not the idolatry that you struggle with. And so what idols might you cherish? A booklet, a, a study guide called The Gospel in Life, has a list of about 20 possible idols that you and I might struggle with. And it it addresses these all in the context of a couple of questions. Life has ultimate meaning when, or I have ultimate worth when. And then it lists a series of 
what those idolatries might be. So let me just give them to you. I don't expect you to write them all down, but just listen and think about, is that something I'm tempted to? When I have power and influence over others, what they called power idolatry, or I am loved and respected by fill in the blank, they called it approval idolatry, or I have this kind of pleasure experience or this quality of life can be comfort idolatry, or I can master this area of life in myself, which can be control idolatry. When people are dependent on me and they need me, and remember the the first two statements, life has ultimate meaning when people are dependent on me or need me, the sense of dependence idolatry, or when I am completely free from obligations to take care of someone or anyone, independence idolatry. And so often life is that way. You You can err this way or you can swing all the way to the other side and err that way. I am highly productive and getting a lot done. Work idolatry, something that maybe some of you are tempted to, some of us are tempted to. I am recognized for my accomplishments, achievement idolatry. If I can just win this prize or get this grade. I have a certain level of wealth or financial freedom or possessions, materialism idolatry. It's rampant in our culture but even is a temptation in the church. They give one as religion idolatry and understand the description. Life has ultimate meaning or I have ultimate worth. When I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities, they call that religion idolatry. Certainly we see that in the Apostle Paul before his conversion. We see it in the the history of Martin Luther before he came to understand that God was both just and justifier. But then you have the other temptation. I am totally independent of organized religion. I'm living by a self-made morality, irreligion, idolatry, and people all around us have that. Or my race, my culture is ascendant and is recognized as superior. Then I have worth. Then I have value. Racial and cultural idolatry. Or a particular social or professional grouping lets me in. They call that inner ring idolatry. It doesn't mean it's wrong to be in a particular group, but if that's where you find your worth, then it becomes idolatry. My children or my parents are happy with me can become family idolatry. Mr. or Ms. so-and-so loves me, relationship idolatry. Or I'm hurting, I'm, I'm having a problem, and in that we can sort of claim a suffering idolatry. And I've talked to people, asked them why they thought they should go to heaven, and they've said, because I had a hard life. I think that is that suffering idolatry. Or my political or social cause is in influence, is in power. And we're going to see that all through this election cycle, what they call ideology idolatry. Or I have a particular look or particular body image, image idolatry. Those are just some suggestions of what idolatry you and I might be tempted toward. The questions that I asked at the beginning, what's your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most? What do you rely on or comfort yourself with when things go badly? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What are you proudest of? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? All of those are temptations to idolatry. 
and particular sins that lead you to believe lies about God and the ways of God are idolatry. If I engage in this sin, I will be satisfied. It will be worth it. As one writer put it, underlying any failure to walk in holiness is some form of idolatry. That really echoes what Martin Luther said. You, you might be inclined to say, well, that, that, those things aren't a problem for me. And, and I pray that they're not. But heed the final words of John in his first letter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. He's not speaking just to you kids, though you kids need to guard yourself from idols. He's speaking to the church to whom he's writing. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Are you cherishing worthless idols? When you do that, when you cherish worthless idols, what happens? Well, Jonah tells us that in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, or the way I have it in the outline. When you cherish worthless idols, you forfeit God's mercy. You forfeit God's mercy. And there's some various translations of that phrase. There's a, a little bit of question in the text. Is the, is the steadfast love, uh, is, it, is it God's steadfast love, or is it steadfast love that you're giving up? But I don't think there's a sharp distinction between that. Because if you're giving up steadfast love, who can give steadfast love? Who can give faithful covenant love except God himself? And those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. When you trust in the Lord, you get his faithful love, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love as it's defined in the Jesus storybook Bible. But when you trust in an idol, you get nothing good. You get nothing good. Now the good news is that this forfeiting for a Christian is temporary, but it's real. Don't pursue something just because there will be an end to it. Uh, what are some texts that tell us that it's real? First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So husbands, if you don't treat your wife the right way, if you don't regard them as God has said to regard them, and maybe that's because of a sense of power or because a sense of relationship that you're pursuing more than you're pursuing the things of God, then God says your prayers will be hindered. It's real. Though it may be temporary, it's real. Idolatry and Christianity is incompatible. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 to 18. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, that language of the covenant. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. An implication there is you don't come out, you do touch an unclean thing, I won't welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. For a Christian to play with idolatry, to participate in idolatry, and then to expect the mercy of God. We're saying, Lord, come show me favor while I cherish this worthless idol. 
I think, and this is an ugly illustration, but it would be like a husband who asked his wife to come with him while he visits his mistress. Lord, show me favor while I cherish this worthless idol. When you cherish worthless idols, you forfeit God's mercy. And when you cherish worthless idols, you provoke God's discipline. That's why Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Loving discipline from God. God brings loving discipline. And sometimes for us, either as children or as adults, the fear of discipline or anticipation of discipline is what makes us most afraid. I'm not going to tell mom and dad that I broke something when I was horsing around in ways that they told me not to do. And there's a difference between breaking something by accident and breaking something while you sin. And often it's the anticipated discipline that makes us most afraid. But what does Hebrews tell us? In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are approved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Yet afterward, it yields the fruitful peace of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Children, if you're withholding, telling your parents of something you did wrong because you're afraid you'll be disciplined, don't be afraid that you'll be disciplined. Be afraid that you might not be disciplined. And you, who the people of God, if you don't receive God's loving discipline for your sin, be afraid. None of us want it. It's not enjoyable. It's painful. But it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When you cherish worthless idols, you forfeit God's mercy. You provoke God's discipline. And so Jonah presents an instead. He presents an alternative. He presents a contrast there in verses 8 and verse 9. If you'll pardon the pun, Jonah has had a whale of a conversion. As we consider this morning, Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish is his most accurate and faithful evangelism. Here's the contrast, trust in worthless idols or with a voice of thanksgiving sacrifice to God, pay what you vow, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so what is the call? Instead of cherishing worthless idols, what are you to do? You're to sacrifice to God. Now, wait a minute, preacher. Wait a minute, pastor. That's an Old Testament thing. I mean, there's a once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, right? Right. So we don't have to sacrifice, right? Wrong. In fact, we're called all through the New Testament to sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good 
and pleasing and perfect will of God. We, we don't have to sacrifice in the New Testament, do we? Yes, we have to sacrifice as a living sacrifice. I think in some ways it was probably easier to be a sacrifice that was killed and then burned on the altar because once you're dead, it's done. But we're called to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. But even that connection to a sacrifice, what was left of the Old Testament sacrifice? Nothing. Nothing but ashes. And so we are to give everything. As one writer said it, this verse is a bold call to total commitment. God, I'm yours. I will do what you command. I will trust in you and I will sacrifice my life to you. God, in Jesus, I am yours 100%. That's the call of a sacrifice to God. And then Peter writes as well about this call to sacrifice. He says, therefore, get rid, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you put off sin and you put on Christ and you cherish his word. And as you do that, you're being prepared so that you can offer acceptable sacrifices to God, spiritual sacrifices. Or the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, therefore let us offer to him continually a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. You and I are called, instead of cherishing worthless idols, to sacrifice to God. Do good and share. Now, I've been told that children sometimes don't like to share. But God says he's pleased with the sacrifice of sharing. Now, I think sometimes adults don't like to share either. And God is pleased with the sacrifice of sharing. So instead of cherishing worthless idols, sacrifice to God. And sacrifice to God with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Always at the heart of idolatry is that somehow this idol, this pursuit is what will satisfy me. And instead, we give thanks to God that God is everything that I need. That God has everything that I need. Therefore, I will be thankful to the God who is and has everything that I need. I will live a life of thanksgiving. You see, it's ingratitude, it's unthankfulness that is often at the root of idolatry and other sins. And so instead, Jonah commits himself, I will, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to God. So instead of cherishing worthless idols, sacrifice to God with thanksgiving and obedience. Sacrifice to God with thanksgiving and obedience. Jonah says, I will fulfill what I have vowed. What have you vowed, dear Christians? Let me just suggest two vows that those of you who are members of this church have taken. Covenant of church membership, vow number three, do you repent of your sin 
Confess your guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God. Profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord, and dedicate yourself to his service. Do you promise that you will endeavor to forsake all sin and conform your life to his teaching and example? You have made a vow that you would follow Christ. And when temptation comes, temptation to idolatry or to any other sin, you're confronted with the choice. Will I follow Christ or will I follow this desire? Will I fulfill the vow that I have made? And at times we have to say, Lord, help me. Because the pull of this idol, the pull of this temptation is more than I can endure. And God says, no, it's not. I will always give you a way of escape that you may be able to stand up under it. And so fulfill what you have vowed as a member of Christ's church. And for some of you, you've made wedding vows. You've made vows to love and to serve and to honor and to keep. Fulfill your vows. Fulfill the things that you have, have vowed to God. But don't do that in some sort of a religious idolatry. God, look at me. I'm keeping my vows. I'm acceptable to you. I've done everything that you've asked. Because God says when we've done everything that we've asked, we're only worthless servants. But we say, God, I want to do everything that I've promised. I want to do it because I love you. I love Christ. And so the last call is to cling to Jesus' salvation. Cling to Jesus' salvation. What is it that Jonah professes? Salvation belongs to the Lord or salvation is from the Lord. Spurgeon says Jonah learned this good sentence of theology in a strange college. That's the belly of the fish. Salvation is from the Lord. And so cling to Jesus' salvation. Cling to his once-for-all sacrifice. You and I are sinners, unable and unwilling to please God left to ourselves. And if you have never come to cherish the salvation of Jesus, you are still in your sin, and you deserve God's wrath and punishment, not merely his discipline that lasts for a moment, but his eternal wrath and punishment. But God's plan from before the beginning was to provide a substitute for the sin of all who would trust in him. And even that trust, that faith, is a gift of God. Jesus is that substitute. We saw this morning in all of Jonah 2 that he was forsaken by God, punished by God in his death on the cross, punished for all the sin that those the Father had given him. He died and he was raised from the dead on the third day and he's now ascended to heaven where he rules men and nations and to those who receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you are cherishing worthless idols, instead cherish Jesus from whom you can and you must receive salvation. And if you have cherished him, but fall into idolatry or any sin, cling to Jesus' salvation. John writes in 1 John 2, My dear children, I'm writing to you these things so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so it goes this way, don't sin. But if you do sin, trust your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you trust your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, don't sin. And if you do sin, trust your advocate, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you trust your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, don't sin. But if you do sin, trust your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might feel like that doesn't make sense. That seems worthless. And yet that's the, what we're to do as Christians. When we sin, we're to come back to Christ. We're not somehow to say, well, I can somehow out, uh, undo this sin. I can somehow make satisfaction between myself and God on behalf of what I've done. No, I can't. And so I come to my advocate and I say, Lord Jesus, please plead your case for me before the Father that you might declare me not guilty because you willingly became guilty for me. And I believe the more we understand that, and the more we grasp the depth of our forgiveness, the more we're prompted and motivated to turn from sin, to not cherish worthless idols, but cherish the Savior who has granted us salvation. When you encounter Jesus in the gospel accounts, it's not the sorrowful sinners that Jesus condemns. Rather, those sorrowful sinners he grants forgiveness and salvation. And so, dear children, keep yourself from worthless idols. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we want to make the claim that Jonah made here in this text. I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet we know that there are times that in the moments, instead of cherishing our Savior, we cherish worthless idols. And turn us from that. Renew our love and our affection, our thanksgiving for the work that you have accomplished in saving us. The pardon that you have given us in Jesus. And because we're pardoned, because grace has superabounded, may we not sin so that grace may abound. Lord, explore our hearts. Search us. Know our hearts. Try us. Know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any way of idolatry in us and turn us from that and lead us in the everlasting way. We ask in the name of Jesus, our advocate, our redeemer, our treasured savior. Amen.